Isaiah 36, 10. Isaiah 36, 1 through 10 is our text. Isaiah 36, 1 through 10. From the prophecy of Isaiah, the first 10 verses of chapter 36. It came about in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of, Jer of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rab Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go, through, go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not... He whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar. Now therefore come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Frederick Speakman was headed out on the diner train to Buffalo, New York one night. He was sitting across from a lady who was much like him, overweight. And so they had some things in common as they talked about uh, dieting, etc. And he asked her what she did, and she said, I'm a candy dipper. He said, well, I've never met a candy dipper. How's business? She said, well, it's just great, going fine in the candy concern of her family back in Ohio. But she said, to be honest with you, I'm not having much fun in the candy business anymore. He said, she said, since we got all those machines. He said, before we became automated, we, uh, we could probably dip 150 pounds of candy a day. And now, I said, we just dip all kinds of candy. We've, expanded our plant and business is booming. She said, I don't know why I'm complaining because 
All I do now is just kind of supervise the girls that run the machines. Then she thought, amused a minute, and said, that's the problem. She said, it doesn't matter that you have all these machines, you still have to have people to run them. And that's our problem, she said. For there's no guarantee that comes with the machines as to what kind of people you're going to have to run them. That's what this text is saying. Assyria has encompassed about the city of Jerusalem and cut off their escape, and there is no way out. And the people in the city are demoralized and they're wanting to give up. But Hezekiah is, is not ready to give up yet because he's counting on some help from Egypt. He's made a bargain with the Pharaoh of Egypt to send him some horses and the famed chariots of Egypt. And who can stand against those chariots and horses? And so the commander that surrounds, that leads the army surrounding Jerusalem, stands outside the walls and taunts the guard in the wall palace and cups his hand to his lips and shouts, Tell your king he's a fool. Tell him he's through. Tell him he's trusting in something that has no strength. You can find him right now standing in the window of his palace, scanning the horizon, staring down toward the plains of Moab, looking for the first swirl of dust that would indicate his friend the Pharaoh is going to produce on his bargain. But after you get the horses, what are you going to do? You don't have any riders to put on them. Why, my king, I swear by him, will do the same thing for you. We'll send 2,000 horses through your gates if you can guarantee able, able and loyal men to put on their backs. But that's the trouble with the horses. No guarantee comes with them as to what kind of riders you'll put on their backs. It seems to me that this text is relevant to today. No question about it, we have the horses, we have the machines. Technologically we advance beyond our enemies and our allies, but the truth also is, is there that we have lost credibility and influence both at home and abroad. And some stand on our shores today and taunt us, all right, so you have the machines, so you are the richest nation in the earth, so you have this automation. What kind of people do you have in control of them? So you have the machines. Do you have the character? I suggest this morning that in America we may be suffering from some illusions. One is the illusion that a well-equipped life will be automatically a happy life. If that were true, we ought to be the happiest people in the world. If it were true that machines would make you happy, if it were true that a well-equipped home is an automatically happy home, that a well-equipped life is an automatically happy life, we ought to be the happiest people on earth, but we're not. We're shot through with anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Eldon Trueblood said, there is no real peace in the land for there is so much animosity and fear and open conflict that nobody really knows true peace. 
If it were true that a well-equipped life was an automatically happy life, we'd be the happiest people in the world, but we're not. Americans take more drugs, drink more liquor, and consume more tranquilizers than any people on earth. I think we suffer this morning from a second illusion. It is the illusion that a life that has great means will automatically be a life that has great aims. That is an illusion. It is not true that a, a life that has great means will have great aims. That's not true. I think that that illusion also creates some problems. For if we think that just to have great means by which to live, we'll have great means for which to live. What, what does that cause? Somebody said, it causes a generation of moral morons that hold in their hands nuclear dynamite. It is not true that if we have great means by which to live, we'll have great aims for which to live. I think we suffer from a third illusion today. It is the illusion that we shall always be free. I did something this morning that I've done before in churches, and it's always kind of a shocker. I mean, it takes a week sometimes to explain to folks that that was just an illustration of what might be. And I think that one of the reasons why that is such a shocker is that we just assume that we're always going to have this. That we're always going to be free. That is, there is nothing farther from reality than that. There is nothing that is more easily taken for granted than freedom, and there is nothing easier to lose than that. It takes courage to win freedom, but it takes character to keep it. And the courage to win it is a whole lot easier to come by than the character to keep it. It is not always true that we shall always be free. It is great this morning that we gather to get together and honor and salute our forefathers who had the courage to win our freedom. But the most important and most serious question this morning is this. Are we, do we have the character that's necessary to keep it? How do you keep freedom? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he had the Ten Commandments under his arm. Now I know what you're thinking. Oh no, he's going to give us a lesson on the Ten Commandments, those negative things that we're not supposed to do. But have you ever read the preamble to the Ten Commandments? God said... I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of Egypt. Do you get the thrust of that? He was talking to people who for the first time were free. Not a person standing there who heard Moses speak had ever been free. They had never known a moment of freedom. For 400 years Israel had been under the bondage of Egypt. Not a single person had anything to say about his life. The government told him where to go, what to eat, and what to do. For years, the government had taken every male child born to a Jew and taken him out and killed him. 
There wasn't a one who had ever been free. And God said, now you're free, right? And in one voice they could have said, free for the first time, free. And God said, I'm the one who gave you freedom, right? And in one voice they could have said, right, you're right. Then God said, I'm going to tell you how to stay free. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. The greatest threat of our free, to our freedom this morning is not the enemy that opposes us, but the people who reside within us who have, no, who have disregarded God and His ways. Elliot Carbett has a marvelous book called Prophets on Main Street. In this book he takes the oracles that, Mo, that Amos presented to Judah. You remember those? He stood there at the, in the city square and he pronounced judgment on the neighboring nations. And the people of Israel, people of Judah just got right in there with him. He said, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I'll not turn my judgment away. For three transgressions of Egypt, of Edom, and for four, I'll not turn my judgment away. And they were cheering him on. Then he turned to Judah and he said, For tr three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away my judgment, because they've sold the needy for a pair of shoes. Then Carbot takes that judgment of Amos and he applies it to modern day, and he makes the hair stand on the end of, on the back of my neck on end when he says this, for three transgressions of America and for four. I will not turn it back, my judgment, because you've dropped atom bombs without remorse upon open cities and you've stockpiled H-bombs ad infinitum. So I'll make other nations fear your power and envy your wealth. Your doom is assured, your demise is at hand. For I hear your songs of self-praise. I listen also to your criticism of others. But though I remove the wax from my straining ears, I cannot hear the voice, your voice raised in self-judgment or repentance. There is wailing in the streets of Washington and confusion on the expressways of Chicago. There is atomic dust over the city of Los Angeles. No smog lay as heavily or as long. The cries of the children in New York City are heard above the siren scream. For you trusted in the makers of the atom bomb, but you trusted not in the maker of the atom. We'll not always be free. And I think that the result of these illusions has created some problems in America. Now, I know that when a person begins to point out some negative things, what we normally think, is, what, we, what comes up and flashes in our mind is the, the bumper sticker, America, love it or leave it. If you don't like it here, get out, you know. To say some things that are negative about anybody is not to say that you don't love them. I say a lot of things negative about my son in correcting him. He knows it, and I love him. And there are some problems in our land, and we know it, and we love it. You know what the largest industry in America is? It's organized crime. Gross revenues from the sale of narcotics and gambling Prostitution and pornography exceed $150 billion in America last year. That's greater than the revenues of the United States oil companies and automobile industries. 
And the sale, illegal sale of cocaine and marijuana in America exceeded $59 billion, and that's more than all of the gifts to charities, education, and religious organizations combined. And we're, rich, we're witnessing a sexual revolution in America that is straining our family life in the last decade. The number of couples who live together out of wedlock doubled. One out of every two marriages ends in divorce. In Washington, D.C. last year, more babies died to abortion than were permitted to be born. And in the period of time from 1970 to 1979, the number of couples having children out of wedlock doubled so that out of every six babies born in America, one of them has been born illegitimately. And we're witnessing a moral and religious revolution in our land. Consider a proposed law in Arizona that would forbid all state licensed psychiatrists to conduct seminars on family relations, all except licensed psychiatrists. Consider the school in California that prohibited a small group of Christians from praying together on the school lawn. And another school in California where the principal ran outside and stopped some young people from praying together in their own car in the parking lot. And the expunging of religious materials from history books. The order in Florida forbidding the teaching of any religious facts in association with our history. The history text which gave three pages to Eugene V. Debs, the father of American socialism, but less than one page to George Washington, the father of our country. And we drove up the streets of New York in the Gray Line bus. Let me tell you something. There's a church on every corner in New York City. I, I was amazed to see that. But they're old and they're run down and they're empty. And you can look anywhere in the city of New York on Sunday night and you'll be an exception if you find a church. And we went into the city of Philadelphia where all of this began. And there's a church on every block in their young people. I mean one on every block. And they're empty and they're run down and they're closed. And there are thousands of people within walking distance, literally thousands within walking distance of where we were, who are, it is evident by what we saw while we were there, hungry and responsive and open to love and the Christian witness. And so we sat around one night and we talked about how great it is to live in Durant even, as opposed to Philadelphia, New York City. And I come back home and I stand in, these pulpit, in this pulpit and I walk these halls. And I think about, you know, you know what, what are we doing, you know, about it? Is there any hope for it, you know, to drive through those concrete canyons and see thousands of people in those housing projects literally trapped there? And is there any hope economically even? Really, there's, there's, there's little. And we come home to Durant, America, and we 
sit in our churches with padded pews and we take it for granted. And we come here when it's convenient. And we witness occasionally. And we press the claims of Christ to His liberation. You shall know the truth and He shall make you free. It's in the masculine, not what you know, who you know. And we quote that verse and we, and we talk about it and yet we press no claims to our neighbor's heart about Him. We go our way. And that's the problem. There are some illusions and those are the illustrations. Is there any illumination? Is there any answer? Is there an answer? I hope T.S. Eliot was wrong in his prophecy when he, when he talked about the day when we would hear the winds howl over ruined cities like Dallas. And he said, we're going to see, said T.S. Eliot in his prophecy, that great Christian mind, he said, we're going to see the day when the only memorial to these dead godless people will be our asphalt highway and a thousand lost golf balls. And Francis Schaeffer, who probably is the greatest contemporary religious thinker right now, has already said in several years ago that America has had her chance and he calls us post-America under the judgment of God. Already had her chance. I don't know whether there's hope or not. When we sing God bless America, I wonder if we really understand that we're asking God to do something He may not can do in His nature. It is God's nature to bless and to give that is His nature. But it is also His nature to judge sin. And if we know anything about the biblical God of the Old Testament, maybe He's changed, but the biblical God of the Old Testament judges sins and judges nations. That same biblical God said, if my people who are called by my name, get this, hear this, it seems to me that resident in God's people is the answer. I believe that. I don't know whether you're asleep or, uh, or uh, unhappy or both. It seems to me that something inside of you would want to say amen when someone said, resident in God's people is the answer. It seems to me that in the history of the world, it, is God, it has been God's people who have provided the answer to the problems not the people necessarily that you send to the Senate or to the White House, but God's people. I think resident in who we are and what we have is the answer, the solution to man's ill and man's hurt and man's disobedience. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. If my people... If just the people sitting in this audience this morning, if my people were called by my name, would humble themselves. 
I mean bow our heads and bow our hearts and bow our attitudes and our arrogancy and our self-sufficiency and understand that we have only God as our hope. And humble themselves and pray. Do you pray? The average layman said Jack Taylor prays an average of three minutes a week and the average pre preacher four minutes a day. Where are the people who are praying? I mean groaning before God. I mean crying out to Him. In this wise, on this wise, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heaven and come down. Seems that on the 4th of July, we'd be on our knees saying, oh, God of our fathers, that thou would rend the heaven and come to deliver us. Restrain your righteous anger until we repent. Do you pray? Let this auditorium be empty. We'll still make it. Let those Sunday school rooms be empty and we'll still have a church. Let that prayer room be empty and we have no breath. For the breath of the church, of the church is the wind of the Spirit of God and He comes only by prayer and fasting. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and just a little talk with Jesus, not going to make it right. And seek my face, that means to desire Him, not His hands, but His face. Not what He can do, but who He is. To thirst for Him. If God's people would just begin to thirst for Him, if the people in Durant, God's people in this place in America would just begin to thirst for Him and to believe that the smiling countenance of God is, is the key to success and happiness. We can't seek the face of God when our back is turned to Him. Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Folk, listen to me and I'm nearly through. America can't have her favorite sin and God too. Nor can we. Turn from our wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and I'll heal their land, forgive their sin. It was raining straight down. We got off the bus and with umbrellas and sacks and coats over our heads, we went out and got on a boat. And we started out into New York Harbor. We motored out there a little ways, and it wasn't long until we were getting close to that statue. You've probably seen it. First time for me country boy come to town and we motored out about a quarter of a mile out into the bay, out into the harbor and docked and got off with thousands of people and lined up to go inside and there she stood you know I mean it's it's gigantic. 
that Statue of Liberty. Some of us went, some of the kids went all the way to top. Some of us went through the museum, saw the films that they have. I think we're all awed, touched by it. We, we joked about it. But we were all in awe of it. Because it stands there as a symbol of the fact that America has always been free. And outside the city gate, we all went. I was just about 16 when I went there the first time. In my mind, I went out to that place on which he hung. And I stood there before that center cross transfixed in awe. And I saw him see me. And I heard him say, Gerald, I love you. And I want you to be forgiven, to be free. One symbolizes the freedom of a nation. The other symbolizes the freedom of the individual, the soul, spirit. Do you know the Lord? Would you like to know Him? To know Him is to know salvation's plan, experience. Maybe this morning you'd like to come and say, I'd like to stand today here at the front and say, I want to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And maybe those of us who've heard a reminder of something we hear every year would just like to come to say, Pastor, I want to rededicate myself to God, not to freedom, not to a nation, not to an individual, but just to God. I want to live on earth as they live in heaven. We'll have our invitation. We invite you to come and join our church. This is a good day to do that. What a great day to do it. On Independence Day, after I've prayed for us, would you come while we sing? Father, I thank you for the privilege of preaching today on this special day, for the privilege of hearing. We stand indicted this morning because to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. We stand indicted this morning because of our own apathy and indifference, our own selfishness. God, we want to want the fullness of the Spirit of God to be the salt of the earth in reality and experience to preserve that which is so good, to be agent of that preservation. Bless now, Father, this moment of truth, this time of decision, in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, we'll invite you to come as we stand. Would you, while we sing?